If you would please turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 2. I start this morning my Christmas series. All four Sundays we'll be looking at my Christmas playlist. Now don't worry, my Christmas playlist does not include All I Want for Christmas is You. In fact, I would support any political party that would outlaw that song. I would even vote for the Green Party if they would outlaw. I'm tired of that song already. No, on my Christmas playlist are four, actually five, because of Christmas Eve, five uh, well-known Christmas hymns that we're going to look at the story behind it. More importantly, we're going to look at the scriptures that uh, support it, and then the Savior that is revealed through it. So Zechariah chapter 2, I'll read verses 10, 11, and 12. As I read it, I will remind you that this is the Word of God. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again Choose Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, Zechariah's book is placed near the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the last words we hear uh, before the beginning of the New Testament. And it is a promise that uh, the Lord is coming. It's a promise that uh, he will reign uh, in Judah and will inhabit Jerusalem, but it's a promise that brings joy that he, uh, the Lord, will uh, send his Messiah to dwell in our midst. So Father, this morning we want to think along those lines that um, yes, this is a promise that the Messiah was coming, and certainly it was uh, uh, the longing of, of the Jewish heart and nation for this arrival. But God, it's also the longing for Christians, for us. And we'll see how that can be true uh, this morning. So thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for giving it to us. Um, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds uh, to receive it this morning. Amen. We're going to follow the same format each Sunday as we look at my Christmas playlist. We're going to first look at the song's story, or in other words, uh, behind the music. Uh, then we're going to, more importantly, look at the scripture's story. Uh, what is it that we have to sing about? Why are we singing about it? And then most importantly, we're going to look at the Savior's story, how this song and how this season reveals uh, the Messiah, the coming one, the long-expected Jesus, as we are going to look at this morning. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Uh, first, let's look at the uh, song's story. The song's story. Um, Charles Wesley helped his more famous brother, John, start the Methodist movement. 
Uh, as a writer of more than 8,000 hymns, his songwriting played an important part in the movement's birth. Charles Wesley wrote, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, in 1744. He published it that same year in his hymnal called Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord uh, in 1744. That was, uh, by the way, 278 years ago. Um, This popular hymnal was reprinted 20 times during his lifetime. And since his lifetime, I did the math, this song has been reprinted zillions of times. The tune we sing is a Welsh tune from the 1800s. The lyrics focus on God choosing a Messiah to give, the world, to, give to the world in the form of Jesus. We see it, born to set thy people free, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. It also focuses on the Old Testament Israelites longing for the Messiah to come and take the burden of sins from them upon himself. Whereas the song says, from our fears and sins releases. The last line of the first verse says, joy of every longing heart. This may have been inspired by the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, who claimed that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator. Or as the song says, let us find our rest in thee. We are in Advent season. Advent comes from the Latin word for coming. Or maybe more, more close to it, it, it'd be better to think of it as arrival. Um, think of it as a coming, just say, you say, well, listen, my, you know, my, my friend's coming for, for Christmas. Arrival says, uh, and they arrive at the Harrisburg Airport at 7.15 today. So, so Advent is more than just this vague idea of coming. It's this idea that, that uh, we are expecting an arrival, the Messiah. Ever since the Middle Ages, Advent has been the four weeks leading up to Christmas. It's designed to create in us the longing for the coming of the Messiah. One of the adoring strengths of this song is the fact that it doesn't simply retell the nativity story. Instead, it focuses on a hunger that we can all identify with. It talks of fears and sins and a need for rest, a need for strength. It talks about an unfulfilled desire. Although we live in a different time from Charles Wesley, the longings of people's hearts are just as deep. We long for security, for love, for relationships, for meaning. Hope is central to the Christian experience. And the song says, hope of all the earth, thou art. Well, that's the song story. What is the scripture story? Well, look at our text, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell In your midst, declares the Lord. 
He goes on to say, when he comes, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Not just, not just Zion, okay, in verse 10, not just the Israelites, but the whole world will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people also. Then I will dwell in your midst, Zion. He's still referring to Zion. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The Lord will possess Judah and his portion in the holy land and will choose again Jerusalem. So Zechariah was what we call a minor prophet. I, I always get a chuckle out of that. I, I don't know if he'd call himself a minor prophet or not, but we do. Um, he was a minor prophet who lived about 500 years before Jesus. Like the other Old Testament prophets, Zechariah testified of a coming king, a Messiah. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word for chosen one or anointed one. In other words, the chosen one will have been anointed by God to fulfill the position. The chosen one will have been anointed by God to fulfill the position. Who is that, is the question. What do the prophets tell us? The Greek word for, for Messiah is Christ. When we say Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ, we mean God chose him and anointed him um, to, as the one who is expected, the expected one. Or as our song says, come thou long expected Jesus. The Old Testament clearly teaches that the Messiah would come. But it does not explicitly say that he would come twice. God revealed these details little by little. People who lived um, later in later times knew more than those who lived in earlier times. It wasn't until Christ actually came that we got a fuller understanding, but it isn't even at his birth that we got this understanding. It was at his death also. At times, the prophets wrote that God himself would sit on the throne. At other times, that it would be the son of David. This has always been perplexing. In Matthew 22, uh, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. He said, Who, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Then he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So even in the time of Christ, there was, there was this, this confusion. This, it was perplexing. Um, is, this, is this the Lord himself? Or is this the son of David? Or is it both? Sometimes the same prophet would give seemingly contradictory messages. Um, you're in Zechariah. Look at uh, chapter 9. Verse 9. 
Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foul of a donkey. Now, the foul of a donkey. Now, what is that talking about? Where we've heard that before. That's when Jesus, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. But the point is here that the prophet said, your king is coming and he will be humble. He won't lead an army. He'll be riding a donkey. But yet you go to chapter 14 and we read this. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. Look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. So again, here's the same prophet, but there's seeming to be two entirely different prophecies here. Is the king coming to be a humble servant? Or is he coming to defeat the nations and sit on a throne? Which is it? Well, of course, we understand it's both. It's both. They didn't understand that. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't quite gr grasp that. But nevertheless, Israel was waiting for it, longing for it. Um, they were under foreign rule. A son of David did not sit on the throne. They had no king, supposedly, but Caesar. They were dominated by the Romans. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted the deliverer. They wanted it to come. They wanted him to come. But is he the suffering servant or a victorious king? Well, both are true. He's both the suffering servant and the victorious king because he will come twice. He will come the first time meek and lowly, born in a manger, raised by poor parents, never owned anything, depended on the ministry of others to support him, taken prisoner, tortured, crucified shamefully in public, naked, hanging on a cross. Is this what, you, is this what they were waiting for? Is this what Israel was longing for? Their Messiah dying on a Roman cross? No, they wanted a ruler. What they didn't understand was the future king wouldn't just be a ruler for Israel, but a redeemer for the whole world. The idea that the Messiah would come twice is not clearly taught in the Old Testament. However, the teaching is fully consistent with Old Testament prophecy. The Jews may not have understood it at this time, but Israel's Messiah would meet the deep need of people, not just in Jerusalem, 
but over uh, all the world. Another Old Testament prophet uh, communicates this clearly. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 1. But there will be no more gloom, Isaiah 9.1. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan, Galilee. Now, who was from Galilee? Jesus, of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness, Gentiles, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. He shall multiply the nation, and he, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. And with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. And every boot of a booted warrior in battle, in the battle tumult, and the, uh, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Notice verse 1. But there will be no more gloom. You go back to chapter 8, verse 22. It says... Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. The world was in darkness. It was in the gloom of night. But that was going to change. A light was going to come and dispel the gloom. This is what they're longing for. This is what they're praying for. They, since... Uh, um, they had been carried away captive. They, they never enjoyed their own sovereignty. They were always under the, the boot and heel of some other foreign power. Um, half of them, half started with Assyria, then, then, then Babylon. Um, now the Romans. They needed light. They were longing for this coming Messiah who would defeat their enemies and sit on the throne. This is what they wanted. This is what they prayed for. This is what they were waiting centuries for. But even in this promise, there's, there's something we need to notice. Um, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Who's he referring to? Well, verse 1, they're talking, he's talking about the Gentiles. This one who coming will be a light not just to the Israelites, but to the Gentiles. Why is that good news? Why? You're a Gentile, right? We're Gentiles. It's not just Israel who's waiting for this 
Messiah. We're waiting. We, we are in gloom of darkness. We need light. Now, you'll notice verse 2. We're going to see this verse again shortly. It says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. So that's the Scripture's story. What is the Savior's story? The, the song doesn't say, Come thou long-expected Messiah. It doesn't say, Come thou long-expected Christ. It says, No, come thou long-expected Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the expected one. Jesus is the expected one. That all the prophets foretold, that all the, the Old Testament scriptures uh, hinted at, uh, that all the Jews longed for, this expected one, who is it? We'll turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. Again, he's, he is longing for this one to come to bring light to the gloomy, to comfort the nation. The Holy Spirit was upon him. More importantly, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So you had, for, you had prophets and, and, and people had been longing for centuries to see the Lord's Christ, to see this promised one, this Messiah, this expected one. Simeon was one of those, except the difference with Simeon is God had told him, you're actually going to see him. You're actually going to see him. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the, the custom of the law, then he took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. In other words, he's saying, I can die now, God. I can die in peace. I have seen the Messiah. I've seen the Lord's anointed. I've seen the Christ. Verse 30, I have, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Where did he see God's salvation? In this little baby he's holding. Verse 31, which you prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Again, he's not just a Jewish savior. The Messiah wasn't going to come just for Zion. Wasn't coming just for uh, Judah, all the nations are looking for this Messiah. They're looking for the light. This is it. So what does Simeon do? He quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people, Israel. Israel. 
Jesus is the expected one. Simeon tied his arrival to Isaiah's great prophecy. And that prophecy included Gentiles, and it even included the specific region of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his ministry. So Charles Wesley is right. Um, it is the long expected one is Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus. Jesus is the expected one. Turn to Luke 7. All the expectations, however, have not been fulfilled. What did we read in these prophecies? He's coming to rule with a rod of iron. He's coming to defeat his enemies. He's going to conquer the nations. He's going to cause a great divide. Did Jesus do that? Has that happened? Look at Luke 7, verse 19. Summoning two of his disciples, Jesus sent them, I'm sorry, John sent them, John the Baptist. Summoning two of his disciples, John the Baptist sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one? <laughs> well, you can't get more clear than that. Are, are you the expected one? Are you? Or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Uh, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Those are two quotes from, again, Isaiah the prophet. So Jesus says, yes, I'm the expected one. Look how I am fulfilling the prophecies. But I have a question for you. Are there still people who are blind? Are there still people who are lame? Are there still people who have disease, who are deaf, who are poor? Yes. Because not all the expectations have yet been fulfilled. He came the first time to identify with humanity. And he showed us compassion. And, and, he, and he showed us that, that as followers of Christ, we should be trying to help the poor and the sick and preach the gospel. But he did not come at that time to defeat the Romans, to uh, reign in Jerusalem. That comes later. The wait is not over. The wait is not over. See, we think of this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We sing it at Christmas time because we think, well, you know, he, he, he came. He, he came uh, uh, on Christmas. He came born of a virgin in a, in a manger. Uh, the angels proclaimed it. Um, the wait is over. No, it's not. We can still sing this song because we're still waiting. Come thou long expected Jesus. This, this hymn seems not really to recognize that um, 
it, it seems to be talking more of a, a spiritual kingdom. Um, it says, now thy glorious kingdom bring, rule in our hearts alone, raise us to thy glorious throne. But I would say that's not what the prophet said. I would say we're waiting for the king to return and establish his kingdom. I mean, even after the resurrection, after uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, uh, the book of Acts, the, the disciples said, is now, you is now? Is it now? Are you going to set your kingdom up now? Now, now? Can we do it now? They said, no, you're going to have to wait until I come back. Revelation 22, 20 says, he who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. When we sing this song, we're not singing about Christmas. We're singing about his second coming. That is still our prayer. Even the, even the Israelites' prayers had expectations, had not been completely fulfilled yet. Yes, they rejected their Messiah. That's the problem. They will one day recognize their Messiah when he comes. Um, we're not really singing about Christmas when we sing this song. Advent, to be honest with you, Advent is really not about Christmas. Now, we, we, we use Advent to anticipate, uh, you know, December 25th or, or whatever, but Advent is really about him coming back. The church is in a similar situation to Israel at the end of the Old Testament. In exile, waiting and hoping and prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. Israel looked back to God's past gracious actions on their behalf and leading them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And on this basis, they called for God once again to act for them. In the same way, the church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming and celebration while at the same time looking forward in eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. Let's pray. The Bible closes, Lord, we saw it with, the, with Christ claiming, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. To which the response is, Amen. And then the response is, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we take comfort in the fact that if the promises that Christ would come the first time were fulfilled, just like Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah and others claimed, then the promises that he will return are even more sure. Christmas proves that he is coming again. He is the expected one. But there's still expectations that need to be fulfilled. 
And as Israel in lonely exile mourned, so does your church, so do your people. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So this Christmas, remind us that this is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. Amen.